0: I know that there is one gentleman among us this morning because of his life work laying track. I know there's one at least among us that is able to identify what is the U.S. standard for railroad gauge. You know what it is? The gauge is is the distance between the two rails. It is precisely four feet eight and one half inches. Now is that not rather odd? Does, Does that not seem rather arbitrary? Four feet eight and one half inches? Why not just Make it four and a half feet. Five feet's a nice, nice round number. Four feet, eight and a half inches. So you ask the question why? How come? Well, when America began building railroads, largely those who did so were. British expatriates. And the standard in England, indeed worldwide, is four feet, eight and one-half inches. But the question remains, why? Well, before there were railroads, there were trams um, in 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 England, and they used that same gauge on the tramways, four feet, eight and one half inches. But but that still doesn't answer the question, why? why? Thank you. Well, that was the measurement used for wagons. New wagons and old wagons fit into the ruts of the road, and they didn't want to make them larger or smaller so that they wouldn't fit into the ruts. Well, okay, so, so where did the ruts come from? Who, who built those? Well, we go back, all the way back to imperial Rome. Who were the first ones to build major highways throughout Europe? And their measurement was four feet, eight and one half inches. That still doesn't answer the question why? Well, that was the width of a chariot. To accommodate the rear ends of two war horses. Uh huh. Well, there are some will s- that will say, "Well, that certainly smells like an urban legend." Well, there are some fact-check sites like Snopes that will say, "Well, there, there's some truth in that, uh, as, as well as as some fal- excuse me, some falsehood that is." that is uh, mixed in with it. Um, There may not have been the the, uh, direct link between Rome and its uh, construction of roads for the sake of their chariots and modern railways. There may not be quite that tight a link. But we, as um, rational human beings... Want an answer to the why questions, how come questions, and, and, that, and that's normal for us in our in our in our analytic thinking to, to try to figure out wh- why something is. We we want to have that very satisfying question answered. Oh, that makes sense. Sometimes we struggle to gain that kind of, oh, that makes sense, but we don't have the details that we need. Well, sometimes we will invent those details ourselves, and uh, we are all guilty of uh, spinning a yarn and saying that it was factory made. We're all guilty of, of making our hypotheses facts. We have to be very careful of where we take our facts and how we put those facts together in a cohesive whole. There may be those times when there's some gaps or things aren't quite filled in. And yet we still want to say, oh, that, that makes sense. This morning in our continuing study through the fourth gospel, we we are in uh, John chapter 6, and this morning, next week, week after that, we, we will be dealing with um, a... a a few paragraphs of Scripture where Jesus is talking very pointedly, very plainly to the Jews. Uh, and and, and there's, there's a, there's a, he's dealing with some, some difficult material, uh, and, and material that is, is beyond our ability to fully and completely grasp Jesus is talking about human freedom, human responsibility, and divine sovereignty. And and, and at times it's uh, difficult to put all of all of these pieces together. Um, I, I I I'm, I'm going to read to you a quote by George Whitfield. He was uh, he was a contemporary of. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, um, uh, John Charles Wesley uh, during the First Great Awakening. He said this. Let a man go to the grammar school of faith and repentance before he goes to the university of election and predestination. Let me read that again to you. Let a man go to the grammar school of faith and repentance before he goes to the university of election and predestination. Now this morning, we are matriculating in both schools. We can't escape dealing with all of these topics, all at the same time, in just a handful of verses that we will consider from John chapter 6. Before I read the text, let me set the, the, uh, the, the text in context. You remember the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus has a full day of ministry, teaching and healing the sick, casting out demons. And at the end of the day, he says to his disciples, you need to feed these people. Well, they had nothing. Andrew found a little boy who, who was willing to share his lunch. It was, consisted of five small dinner rolls and a couple of pickled fish. Jesus took that, that simple, small sack lunch of a little boy, and he multiplied it so that 5,000 men plus women plus children, arguably easy, 20,000 people ate and were satisfied. Well, (laughs) on that particular day, as with most every other day in Jesus' earthly existence. He piled signs upon signs upon signs. Everyone, individually, perfectly, and poignantly pointed to Jesus alone as being the anointed of God, the expected one, the Messiah, the Christ. But most of the people in that crowd, they didn't get it. They were interested in what Jesus could give to them. They saw Jesus as the ultimate, the the, the quintessential miracle worker, their miracle worker. And they hunted him down after after that day's events were completed. They hunted him down and wanted to be with him to see what else he was going to give to them free health care, free food. They found him the next day, and Jesus rebuked them. Chapter 6, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're not interested in in doing the will of God. You're not interested in obeying me. You're interested in doing your own thing, and you want me to be complicit in your will. They didn't get it. Uh, they were absolutely delighted when Jesus provided them Big Macs. And so the next day, they, Jesus was talking to them about spiritual things, urging them to, to pursue that which goes beyond this world, and they were still stuck on Two wolf-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, onions, pickles, and a sesame seed bun. Verse 34, Lord, give us this bread. Here's our text, verse 35 through verse 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I've got four, um, four, four uh, uh, points in my, in my notes that you can follow along with me. Um, point number one, Jesus spiritually satisfies Verse 35 begins with one of the famed I am statements in um, John's gospel. That Greek phrase, uh, eimi," uh, I am, harkens back to uh, Exodus chapter 3 when God called um, um, Moses from, uh, from the burning bush. God identifies himself as the I am. This is the Greek translation of that. Um, of that uh, Hebrew word Yahweh um, he, we, we've, we've encountered this, this phrase before chapter 6 verse uh, verse 20 but there's seven times where John uses this phrase the I am phrase and he attaches it with a predicate that is he, he says I am and then he fills in the blank here he says I am the bread the bread of life uh, elsewhere, he will he will say we will look at these uh, as we as we come across them in John's Gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. Um, Jesus uses this this phrase repeatedly to identify himself. Here, in verse thirty five of our text, he refers to himself as the bread of life, the one who perfectly satisfies. You'll, you'll notice in, in, um, in, in verse 35 uh, that he, Jesus uses the, the, the strongest negation he could possibly use when he says, he who comes to me will not hunger. And he repeats it. He who, com- who believes in me will not thirst. And then he uses an adverb ever to, to punctuate that negative. The person who comes to me will never be hungry again. The person who comes to me will never be thirsty again. His hunger will be completely satisfied. His thirst will be completely quenched. Jesus perfectly satisfies. Kind of harkens back to a number of passages in the Psalter. I'll read just one of them from Psalm 63. David writes, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And Jesus is the one who perfectly satisfies, who, purpose, who perfectly quenches our thirst our longing for that which goes beyond this life many of the people many of the people in the crowd that Jesus addressed were perfectly satisfied being hungry being thirsty being impoverished indeed being spiritually starving. They're they're okay with that. We, we, We can't miss the fact that we are called to come to Christ and to believe on Him. Verse 36. I said to you, Jesus, remarks, That you have seen me. Thinking back to to what what they had just experienced. All of the signs, including the feeding of the 5,000 plus plus women and children. You have seen me and seen all that I have done. Yet, you do not believe. Content in their mediocrity, content in their impoverished state, content with their sin, not interested in that which perfectly and only satisfies the soul. You see, that person that is satisfied can endure all kinds of difficulties in life because there is deep down this awareness I am okay with Christ. I am okay in Christ. I don't need anything else. I just need Jesus. Second point of your notes. The Father sovereignly chooses. Verse 37 is... is, um, A a difficult verse for us to wrap our mind around. But Jesus is interested in stretching us, in giving us truth, even if we won't fully be able to wrap our mind around it. But let's try. Verse 37 begins this way. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He's talking about a, a, a sovereign act of God. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He does not say. He does not say, all that come to me the Father will give me notice the work of the Father first giving all whoever the all is we haven't talked about that yet the work of the Father is first The Son receives that which the Father gives. Going beyond uh, John's Gospel to other passages of Scripture, all refers to a group, a, a collection of people. And they are given by the Father to the Son... What are these all? Well, these are the names of those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Lamb's Book of Life is, uh, is, is, a, is a phrase that um, we find largely in the, in the book of Revelation, but it's, it's uh, referred to elsewhere. We find it even in the Psalter all the Father gives to the Son r- refers to those people who believe, who will believe, would probably be a better way for me to say that, all those who, who w- will believe, would believe, uh, these are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and at a future time, in their particular day, in their particular generation, they come. They believe in Christ. Turn with me over to um, the book of Ephesians, if you would please, chapter one. Ephesians chapter one, verse three begins the the heart of the, the of the gospel or the uh, the, uh, the, the, the epistle. Um, this is the beginning portion of of paul's letter blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through jesus christ to himself now, here in 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 in, uh, in, in Paul's letter, he he's he, he's he's using university language. He's he's taking us to to um, a- a- advanced uh, learning in speaking of God's choosing, his electing, and his predetermined will regarding our salvation. He's he's making a reference here to, to the act of the Father to give all of these chosen, elected, predestined ones to the Son. And all of these will come to Christ. A.W. Pink uh, wrote, wrote this, listen, the only reason why anyone believes in election is because he finds it clearly taught in God's Word. No man or number of men ever originated this doctrine. Like the teaching of eternal punishment, it conflicts with the dictates of the carnal mind and is repugnant to the sentiments of the unregenerate heart. And like the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and the miraculous birth of our Savior, the truth of election must be received with simple, unquestioning faith. Oh, how we would like to say, oh, well, that makes sense. But doctrines like... Election, predestination. They don't make sense. But they are contained in Scripture. And so there is tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. There is tension between God calling us, uh, God expecting us to respond with belief, faith, repentance, and knowing that at the same time all those who have been called, adopted, predestined, elected, all these have been given to the Son and at a subsequent time Come to him. second page of your notes uh, l- l- let, let me let me take just a, a, a few moments to go through a couple of pages of scripture, a couple of pas- passages of scripture that reveal what does the scripture teach. Regarding our salvation, regarding doctrines of, of election and predestination. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, chosen before the foundation of the world. Before there was anything, God chose, God elected, God predestined. Romans chapter 8 includes um, the the famed so-called golden chain of salvation. Verse 29 reads, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the work of God on behalf of this group of people that John identifies in in chapter 6, verse 37 as the all Romans chapter 9, verse 16, uh, 15. Um, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. Salvation be- depends on God who has mercy. I forgot to put this quote in your notes, but it just came to my mind. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 13. We've looked at this verse in, uh, in, in, in this uh, study. Our salvation um, does not depend on human birth, that is, on human activity, nor, um, uh, uh, not on blood, not uh, on the will of the flesh, that is, Our salvation does not depend on the the willingness of mankind uh, as though it has something to do in our mind or in our will. No, no, our salvation is is, uh, is based on the will of God. Not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Um, Acts chapter 13. Paul, first missionary journey, preaching to the Jews, finding that the Jews are rejecting the message he's bringing. Verse 48 of chapter 13, when the Gentiles heard this, that the gospel was now open to them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and catch this, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, alongside these kinds of verses, and there are many others that we can look at with regard to God's choosing, God's electing, God's predestining, God's choice in salvation, choosing to have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on, on whom he will have compassion. We have also those verses that speak of my responsibility before the Lord. Romans chapter 10. Verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we preach the gospel to everyone. Anyone who has ears. Anyone who is willing to be patient and listen to us. We preach God's gospel and we beg them, we urge them. As Paul does in Acts chapter 17, he commands them to repent, to believe, to trust the gospel, to come to Jesus. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. End of your Bible. Last chapter, last book just five verses from the end, we read this, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who is here say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take water, take the water of life without cost, come. That's our responsibility as human beings, to come to Christ, to repent of sin, to, come, to, to have faith in Him, to trust Him. This is not just New Testament stuff. Isaiah chapter 55. Ho! The prophet writes. I think if he was writing today, he would say, Yo! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. That's our responsibility to come to Christ to believe on Christ, back in our text. So John writes, chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me, all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, it, it's, as, it's as though the Father has given to the Son the book. And the names of all those who have been chosen, predestined from before the foundation of the world, all their names are there. And Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I so appreciated. it finding this out about my spiritual mentor, R.C. Sproul. When he was in seminary, young man, he had this statement written on his desk, written on a piece of paper, so that he would refer to it frequently. It reads this way. You are responsible to believe and teach what the Bible teaches, not what you would like it to teach. If it were up to me, except for a few people, I have to be honest, I would take out the doctrine of hell. If it were up to me, I would take out this doctrine of election and predestination. It causes so much confusion and division. But I am bound by the Holy Spirit of God, like R.C., to believe and teach what the Bible says. Even if there are things that I say in my own mind, that doesn't make sense. Point number three. Jesus personally protects. Look back at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You know, when I was young in my faith, I firmly believed. It made sense to me. I firmly believed that a person could lose their salvation. I thought in my own mind, (laughs) if somebody does something terrible, horrible, no good, very bad, very, very, very bad, even God will kick them out. I remember one time, as 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 a as a brand new believer, as a teenager, uh, the pastor of our church uh, got very very ill, and I thought to myself, "Oh wow, he must have done something really, really, really bad." God is, God is punishing him severely. Well, it, it may be that that was the case. But we know from the life of Job and others that we have considered even recently here in this context, we know that's not necessarily the case. Now, with regard to our salvation, can a person lose it? Jesus says here, that for all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, even though he doesn't say it in, that, in so many words, I will certainly not cast out any of these. Can a person indeed lose their salvation? It was the scriptures themselves that made it very clear, no. Once a person has been touched by God's grace, they will be forever saved. We can take Jesus' words at face value. He will certainly not cast them out. I had a conversation with a gentleman, another brother and sister, uh, brother in Christ, uh, who, who helped me think through this. This, this whole uh, idea, uh, because my thinking made sense to me at the time. And he asked me, how is a person saved? Is a person saved by what they do? No, I responded. Scriptures are very clear. It, it's not by our own works, it is by God's grace. I am simply saved by a merciful act that God shows to me, certainly not by anything that I do. And so he, then he asked me, as a follow-up, if you are not saved by what you do, Can you do anything to undo God's kindness and mercy and grace to you? Answer, no. Else, grace is not grace. It's something that I have earned or unearned. Jesus says it for a second time in our text. Verse 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. All those people whose names are identified in the Lamb's book of life. Not one of them is cast out. Not one of them is pushed aside. Not one of them is sidelined. Not one of them is deemed unimportant, uninvolved, not part of the kingdom anymore. Not one of them. Not one of them. And Jesus says further, I won't lose one of them. John chapter 10 is one of the... One of my all-time favorite chapters in the Bible. And in verse uh, 27 of chapter 10, we read these words. Jesus is speaking. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It, it's, it's like we, we, we have been double bubble wrapped, perfectly protected, eternally protected. There is nothing that will separate us from the love of Christ. Absolutely nothing. My friends, I, 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 I can't right off the top of my head think of, of anything that is more glorious than that. That I am guarded, I am protected, I am shielded by the Holy Spirit of God. There is nothing that will separate me from Christ. Christ. No sin, no temptation, no devil, no wicked person, no terrible, horrible, no good, very bad circumstance, absolutely nothing. He will lose nothing. Point number four, Jesus permanently resurrects. Looking again at verse 39, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me that uh, of all that he has given me, I, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This world is not all there is. I, I saw my, my, one of my neighbors out for a walk this morning, uh, a, a gentleman that I've talked to a number of times about spiritual things. Uh, a, a, and and he's, he's content with this life, content with what he has here, content with just having two-well beef special sauce, cheese, lettuce, pickles, onions on a sesame seed, bun. And while I was driving here this morning, I saw a fire truck in front of another one of my neighbor's homes. Um, I don't know. I called my beloved and asked her to call the wife of that particular neighbor because we know that he has been very very ill and close to death, and I just wondered. Was this morning? That morning. But there's, 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 there's so much more to this life than just this life. There is eternity in front of us, and 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 though there is that that transition that we don't understand fully, that we call death. That's not the end. Jesus has conquered death. He will raise us up at the last day so that we will forever be alive for eternity. Now the Scripture does speak of eternal punishment as distasteful as that doctrine may be, it is in the pages of Scripture. But for those who behold the Son, for those who come to the Son, for those who believe the Son, theirs is a resurrection unto life and glory and in the presence of the Lord Almighty. Book of Daniel, chapter 12. 12. We've looked at this text many times. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, a a euphemism for those who who have have died, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life. The others, the rest of, of, of people, to everlasting contempt and disgrace. There is coming a resurrection of all, and it all depends on what we do with Jesus, my friends. I, I, uh, I, I our time is up, and I, I conclude with, um, with, with, with just this one single thought. Uh, A number of people have asked me over the years, how how, how do I know if my name is written in the book? How how do I know if, if I am among God's elect, His chosen? Well, no one on planet Earth has ever seen this book. It's a spiritual book to begin with. And God's pen of choice doesn't show up on this kind of paper nevertheless those those names are written there but that's a mysterious thing that you and I will not have access to we will not know we will not be able to 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 read our names or the names of of our loved ones in that book doesn't mean that that doesn't exist we are finite beings, finite creatures. And, and, and I, would, I would agree with, with uh, George Whitfield. The, these, these, are, these are part of the university curricula, this idea of, of election and the Lamb's Book of Life and, and predestination and all of that. Uh, I, though God is pleased with us wrestling with truths that he reveals to us, what well, we can wrap our mind around what well, we must wrap our mind around because we have a personal responsibility here do you believe in Jesus i did not ask you the question did you believe in Jesus as if that's a, a past tense do you believe in Jesus it may have started in the in the past but it has continuing results today. Do you today, now, believe in Jesus? If you believe in him, you you trust him. You love him. You obey him. Maybe there's repentance that needs to take place in your heart because you realize, hmm, My belief, my trust, my love, my obedience to the Savior is lacking. Let me ask you another question. Have you come to Christ? I did not ask you, did you come to Christ? That would refer to something in the past. We might liken my question to to, uh, to to the perfect tense. Did you in the past come to Christ, and do you today continue coming to Him? That idea of coming to Christ has attendant to it that idea of dependence. I need thee every hour. I need you right now, Lord. That's evidence of the one who has come to Christ. Those are the things with which we must concern ourselves, my friends. My belief, my coming to Christ, my beholding the work and the person of Christ through the pages of sacred scripture. Come to the bread of life. He is the only one that will or can satisfy. Let's pray. Blessed God, you have enriched our life and our time together this morning because of our time in the scriptures. We bless your holy name for their preservation. And we ask that you might speak to our heart by the Spirit, convict us of sin, righteousness, judgment. Draw us unto yourself. We pray in the name of the resurrected Christ. Amen.